coming to you from Sedona, Arizona today. A mystical, beautiful town with some of the best scenery in America and a woo-woo vibe that I really get a kick out of. My husband, who is a lot more skeptical than me, isn't so enamored with the energy vortexes of it all, but we've both been savoring our hikes among these incredible red rocks. I'm also loving the slower pace of a smaller town. After a month in San Francisco and Los Angeles, it feels like a big exhale. Anyway, we have a special episode for you this week. Today's guest, travel and food blogger Jody Ettenberg, is going to share two life-changing trips with us. The first, a solo jaunt to Annecy while she was studying for a master's in France, signaled the start of Jodie's life as a devoted traveler. Jodie got the travel bug following Annecy, and after briefly taking a job at a law firm in New York, she began traveling full-time, making a successful living from her blog, Legal Nomads. The second trip, a visit to Brooklyn in 2017, during which she wound up in the ER, would effectively end a decade of international roaming. Jodie underwent a lumbar puncture, a fairly routine procedure that didn't go according to plan, leaving her virtually bedbound and in constant chronic pain. On this episode, Jodie and I discuss the power of storytelling, retraining the mind using Vipassana silent meditation, and making the choice to find gratitude, meaning, and beauty when life unspools in the most unfair way. Jodie, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I know you're going to share the story behind two separate trips today. One was the beginning of your life as a full-time traveler, and the other was what essentially put a pause on that life. But before we get to that, I like to ask people, where did your love of travel originate? I think my love of travel originated through the power of story and how storytelling changes you in so many meaningful ways. It connects you to other people and allows you to really sort of jump into a place or a situation that you're not personally experiencing. And traveling gives that to you in this much more technicolor way, you know, this full senses experience of learning about people, about places. So my parents both are great storytellers. My mom studied history and at the kitchen table, art, evening conversations over dinner were, you know, telling the story of some monarch and how this devolution of his empire happened, but done in this beautiful sort of almost telenovela way that got us really interested in learning more about history. And I think that really set the stage for wanting to see these places that my mom used to speak about in person and and actually get a chance to, to see them and experience them myself. And I know when you got the opportunity, you went to France to do a master's in law. Why law and why France? So I actually studied law as my degree here in Canada as well. In Canada, you do an undergrad first usually, and then you do your law degree. Same as the States. I know that's not the case everywhere, you know, in Europe and in France, it's not the case I went straight from something called CEGEP, which is grade 12 and 13, um, straight to law school. So I skipped the undergraduate degree. And that was solely because somebody bet me I couldn't get into law school. I had no desire to be a lawyer. Nobody in my family is a lawyer. People that hear that I skipped undergrad are like, oh, your family must have pressured you. I was like, no, they were mad. They did not (laughs) want me to give up my entire sort of university experience. But I got in and I figured it would be this huge act of hubris not to go. It was 
reasonably priced, you know, Canadian tuition is not the same as the States. And so I had the opportunity at the end of my studies at, at McGill to spend a full year doing a French master's, which is not an LLM. So it's not a, an actual master's in law, but a, a year doing economic integration and intellectual property law in France. And I chose to go there. I had I had always wanted to study in France. Of all the places I could have gone, that was the one that, that seemed to have stuck with me for a long time. Before we get into France, somebody <laughs> bet you that you couldn't get into law school? That is true. You know, everyone's got somebody who they may have been competitive with in school, whatever healthy to not healthy spectrum that is. In this case, the manifestation of it was you know, she really, she was applying straight from Sejep as well and was like, I'm, there's no way you would get in. And I had applied to other schools to study, you know, business, or I had just basically applied to a, ver- a variety of topics. I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. And that's probably why I took the opportunity as well. If there was something else I was aching to do at the time, I probably would have done it. But in the absence of that, it's a great school. McGill is an amazing school. Having the opportunity to study both civil law and common law in a comparative way, you know, was really interesting to my brain, which loves processes. And I took it and uh, we were a few very young people and there were a lot of much older people. The average age in my year was actually higher than a lot of previous years. And there was one man who was the father of a kid I went to school with. And it was like, oh, we're competing for the same jobs. That's great. That's that's just going to be great. My first day of school, someone told me I should go back to high school where I belong. And I didn't deserve to be there, that I should get a real education. And I mean, I'm I'm in my 40s now and I look quite young. So at that point, I, I looked absurdly young and definitely probably like I ought to have been in high school, but still... I was a, a veritable student and the comment was, I went home my first day in tears because it just felt, you know, so alienating, but I ended up making really good friends with people in other years and really enjoyed the experience at McGill and very grateful I went and, and ended up working in New York City as a lawyer after that. I was recruited uh, to work there. So it was a, a great trajectory, but not the one you would sort of apply thinking, I'm so driven. I want to be a lawyer. That's really not what happened. And the same way, and I know we'll get to this, but the same way that when I quit my job, it wasn't to like stick it to the man and travel full time. It was, I'll take a sabbatical. And it organically turned into this other beautiful thing. And I do believe that that is, if you have the privilege of doing it, a beautiful way to live life, to try and allow these opportunities to show you paths that you never thought possible without trying to force something you know, that may not be what's great for you. You have to stop and really listen to think about whether that forcing things is the right way forward. Totally. And just following what feels right in the moment and your gut intuition, which it seems like you're the kind of person who does that. So back to France. Yes. Have you ever lived away from home before? This is the first time that you were going to be going to a foreign country and staying there for a long period of time, right? That's right. I was absolutely terrified. I don't think I slept for a week before I I was due to leave Montreal. I had already left home. I was living downtown in Montreal with friends during my law school years. So it wasn't as though I went straight from like the womb of my parents' house to abroad, but I had never traveled alone. And I was definitely terrified about all the what-ifs that in retrospect seem a little bit awkward to think about. These are not things you need to worry about, Jody. 
but it was it was really overwhelming at the time. And to add to the the sort of politics of the situation, I arrived basically right at 9-11. I mean, it was it was in 2001. So it was there's a very changing landscape politically happening as well. It was like a very potent time. The EU was shifting. The European Union was bringing in the euro. So there was just a lot happening. And personally, I was like, what am I going to do? And what happened was I got there. I was living in dorms. I met a few other exchange students who were lovely. And I decided that the only way I could travel is to really face that fear head on. And I decided to do that the first weekend that I could in in France. Uh, So it was a very uh, stubborn way to to face things, which is sort of a, a historical problem, you know, generally, let's just dive right in and see what happens. But it led to a very different shift in my life. When you're somewhere for a long period of time, one of the joys of that is being able to like do these weekend trips, places and really start to see the country and absorb the culture. So you decided to do this solo trip, bit scary. Where did you decide to go? So I will will also say that after doing the solo trip, which did go well, and I will explain it, I had fellow students who were French in the dorms and they were like, why do you keep traveling every weekend? And I kept saying, have you seen the size of Canada? Do you understand (laughs) what a pleasure it is to have this proximity to other countries right here, right now. So to your point, it was this amazing opportunity to see a lot. And and there were other McGill students I knew also studying in other places. So we got to, you know, rent a car and drive to Monaco and have a lot of fun together as well. What I, what I basically did is I went to the train station at five in the morning and again, a sleepless night. There's a theme here of, is this ridiculous? I went to the train station and the woman, I basically said to her at the, at the ticket counter, like, where is the next train going? That's really far away. She condescendingly, I mean, the, the conversation, I'm sure she was just like, what? Uh, she was very unimpressed with the fact that I actually didn't know where I was going or frankly, what the train routes were in France. The next train leaving from Marseille, because I took a train basically from X to Marseille and then onwards, was to Annecy, Annecy which is a beautiful town. And that is where I went. I basically looked up, there was a, there was a youth hostel halfway up a mountain, not the mountain in the area, but just up a hill. And I had never been to a hostel before. I basically had founded my little guidebook on the train and I showed up and thankfully they had a bed and my, my dorm mate in this hostel was Canadian. And so I like flipped out when I saw she had the backpack flag at the time, this was new to me that Canadians did this She's like, where's your flag? And I said, what am I supposed to have? She's like, yeah, you have to put a Canadian flag on your bag. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was my first experience. I met her and I basically wandered the city alone. I ate alone. I never had trouble being alone generally. I know some people feel awkward eating alone. I love sitting at bars. I always did. And just, you know, eating and watching and and chatting and and being bringing a book you know if there's nothing else to do so being alone was not the scary part to me it was the what ifs of like what if there's no lodging how do I figure out what to do what if I get stuck but it went so well and it was this incredibly empowering wonderful like spiraling of happiness feeling that I could just do this and decide at the spur of the moment to go and it opened up this whole new world for me in a way I never knew and I I really do wonder you know, your, your podcast is the trip that changed me. What would my life have been had I not done that? You know, that unspooled an entire lifetime of 
bringing together story and travel and and then food eventually. But, you know, if I had a terrible time and that lady robbed me, like what, what would my life have been like? I don't know. <laughs> but it it wasn't that way. It was really wonderful. And then every weekend that I could, I basically traveled everywhere to Corsica, to other places in Europe that were close anywhere by train or boat that I could go. I went and it really changed my life. I love that you did that. That's so adventurous. I've always wanted to go to the airport and just jump on a random flight somewhere and with no expectations and just see how it unfolds. So I love that you did that. Are you someone who regularly pushes yourself out of your comfort zone? Have you always been that way? I think I'm a mixture of somebody that's always struggled with overthinking and ruminating and also someone who pushes myself sometimes too far. So I, I've tried over the years, you know, in my writing and talking to readers when I have reader meetups or just my community generally tried to talk to them about, like, to get a real picture here. I'm not trying to say I'm fearless. I am the opposite. I have a lot of fears. We all have fears, right? I'm not saying I'm just doing things. It's always been this struggle between that dichotomy of really wanting to be the person who had no fear, but knowing I had many. And then what was I capable of pushing myself for? In terms of physical health, you know, I always push myself too far. I got sick a lot. And I've since learned a whole bunch of things about my genetics that make it actually obvious that I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did in the ways that I did. But the, the, the kind of classic fears of heights or things like that, that never scared me. And so I took up skydiving. I got certified to dive alone. Like this was something I always wanted to do. People think that's crazy. But if you were like, go live in a room of spiders, I would lose my mind. You know, it really just is, it's very personal what fear is. And once it becomes a phobia, regardless of what that phobia is, you know, you can't beat yourself up too much for not being, you know, pushing yourself further to your point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like, either way, you definitely embrace like a go with the flow mentality on this trip. Do you tend to plan your trips or had you previously tend to plan your trips out or do you just kind of see what happens and how it unfolds I think on shorter trips it's easier to see what happens mm-hmm. on that year when that year in France happened my mom came to visit and it was the first trip we'd ever taken alone and I basically had a book of like chambre d'hôte and jeep like all, all the little auberge in France and an unlimited rental car and was like, let's go, we have three weeks. And we, she came during my break from school and we just, we drove everywhere. We called ahead, if it was busy, we picked another place. We, dro- we ro- drove through Provence up into Paris, went up to the World War One Memorial, looped around. I mean, when I brought the car back, they went, is this a mistake? How much did you drive, woman? Um, and I drove the whole time because I said, basically, you've driven me around my whole life. Like, let me gift you the passenger seat. And in that case, it was, it was doable when, when people and myself included, when I was quitting my job as a lawyer to travel longer term, which happened in 2008. So I saved up as a lawyer to travel. Everyone else had pictures of their degrees on their wall. I had photos of places I had been. When I quit, the managing partner was like, should have known. Maybe it's because you're Canadian. I was like, no, it's just because I love to travel. And honestly, planning to quit that job, which is a lockstep, pressure-filled career like you're not supposed to leave now it's a lot more done you know remote work is more common in 2008 when I was planning to quit and I left in in April it really wasn't done and people told me consistently that I was ruining my life um, and that I was making a huge mistake so between the pressure of you know was this derailing the life that I worked hard for in a way or was this the right move and 
the unknowingness of a long-term trip. In that case, I did plan, I think, far more than I ought to have done. And once I got out, I had booked around the world ticket the first year with multiple stops uh, on a company called Airtrex, and they were the ones to help me sort of plan out the jaunts. I didn't stick to that, you know. In the end, I, I quickly learned that it's far better to fall back on what I instinctively loved to do, which was invite that serendipity into the moment. But it's so hard when it's something that you don't know. And it's so hard to really sit there and, and let yourself, you know, just feel that fear and go, it's going to be, I, I'm resourceful, I'll figure it out. It's hard to convince yourself of that when you're setting out to something much more grandiose. Absolutely. Because every new person you meet along the way, will have new recommendations for you and will make you rethink your route and you'll be adding things and subtracting exactly. things and just like reshuffling. So it's good to be flexible, but you do have to be willing to relinquish control in some sense. I think it takes on one hand, trusting your own sense of resourcefulness. And that's what I learned eventually is that all these horror stories people love to tell you doesn't mean they're going to happen to you. There are some basic common sense safety things, especially as a woman, you have to keep in mind for sure, but you have to keep them in mind at home too. It's not just abroad, you know, this is a universal problem. It's not that the minute you leave home, suddenly everything is more dangerous. It, there are certainly places that are more dangerous than others, but I learned to trust my own resourcefulness, to trust the feelings I was having. There are times I got into a taxi and I was like, nope, this doesn't feel right and getting out. But it's also, you know, really celebrating those moments of meeting people and shifting your schedule and celebrating whatever like bursts out of that into this whole new adventure you never would have touched had you not left your schedule to be more flexible. And, you know, over the years, people would write. And I remember one couple sent me a spreadsheet of all their flights for a year and it was like even small hops. And I, I said, you know, I, I just don't know if this is the healthiest way to go about this process. You know, you really want to enjoy and I think it's hard for people to sink into that mentality when they're in a much more normal state of mind. And again, in today's world with COVID and remote work and changes, more and more people have that openness, state of their flexibility sometimes because they have to, but uh, mm. it wasn't, it wasn't always the case. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you touched on something interesting there, because I'm always trying to figure out why solo travel is so special. So many people come on this podcast and they talk about their solo travel experiences and I think maybe it does come down to the fact that it builds your self-trust, you know, being out of your comfort zone, having to rely on yourself and, and really like, like hone in on that gut instinct. I think it does build self-trust and, and self-reliance. I think that's true. You know, and people talk a lot about how travel changes you. They're traveling in order to find themselves. I don't think travel helps you find yourself per se. I mean, you are who you are. You're not going to fix problems, that's for sure, by traveling. They're going to follow you wherever you go. But <laughs> it will help you get more clarity on your tendencies when scared, when excited, when whatever. And, and like you said, teach you about what you're really capable of. I also think it's harder to be fully serendipitous when you're more than one person because there's there's all these different opinions that that go into it. And I traveled mostly alone for almost a decade. For me, that was my preferred way to go. Even when I was in a couple, you know, I would take solo trips because it always rejuvenated me and the love I had for just the whole process of, of exploring the world. I love the fact that you just like to let things unfold in your life. And I know that after you did this stint as a lawyer in New York and you left for this round the world trip, 
you started a blog, Legal Nomads. And I imagine in the beginning, you were just like, oh, I'm just going to have it as kind of a, a diary online, like my own kind of journal, like maybe my mum will read it. <laughs> but you developed a huge audience. And it seems like you did that quite accidentally. How did that come about? Yes. So first of all, the S in Legal Nomads was another lawyer. She was my opposing counsel on one of the last deals that I negotiated. And during the closing dinner, which was rare to have anymore, we really clicked and we and we went out for dinner again because it's always nice to make new friends, right? And I kind of confided that I was thinking of traveling because she was asking about my plans longer term. And she's like, I wanted to travel the world for a year too. And so we planned it together. And what happened is unfortunately I got really sick along the way, which is the theme. And she ended up going ahead and continuing on uh, to India. I had to go back to New York to get better that summer. And in the end, she didn't love writing on the site. And I discovered that I, I did love writing. It wasn't something I never, as a child was like, I would like to be a writer. No, never. If anything, I wanted to be a vet. So there was definitely this discovery process of the catharsis of writing. And while I always wrote for myself in my journal, whatever, it never occurred to me to, to chase it as some sort of career. Like I said, I was an early version of digital nomads or long-term travelers. There were probably 12 of us at the time and we all knew each other. <laughs> it was very small. And I think that's part of what the success derived from. I don't know if I would have the same success now, but essentially at a time where people were writing much shorter blog posts, I was writing in long form because that's how I wanted to share. I wanted to go into the history. I wanted to show food as learning and a way to learn, not just about like what to see and what to do, but also the people of a place and the site got attention. I think someone posted it on the forum Boots and All pretty early. It won you know, a new blog award. And then I started receiving press sort of organically. Um, over the years, the community really has grown. And they've been, for me, what allowed me to know what's next in my business. I tried to keep that you know, serendipity or letting it unfold. In that aspect too, whatever pain points my readers were telling me they had, that's what I wanted to give them in terms of like a product or a creative. So I'm celiac. I traveled the world as a celiac, but I didn't write about it. I was like, this is my issue. I'm, you know, I'm a solo female traveler too, but I didn't write about that very much. It was just, this is the body I have. But a lot of people wrote in to say they were scared of traveling as celiacs. And so I started writing gluten-free cards and providing like celiac translation cards and Mine were the first ones that talked about cross-contamination and cross-contact, you know, as you travel, which, because I got really sick using a card that didn't say that. And I was like, mm. this is not a me problem. This is a problem generally. So I decided to fix it. My business grew in that way, bit by bit, while at the same time, I said I would never put ads or sponsored content on the site. And I think the combination of those two things, fulfilling what my community was asking for, but also not, you know, with all due respect, people can, I know people need to make a living, but I didn't want my site to look like sites I didn't want to read. And so I, I said I would keep it without those things. And that has allowed it to grow over time into something beautiful that led to all these amazing opportunities in public speaking, which I never did before, and freelance writing for certain places. So it all came out of that decision to quit, which is, a I'm sure the themes are clear here <laughs> over time. <laughs> I love it. And I know that at some point you settled in Oaxaca, right? I did. I spent huh. eight, eight years or so in Southeast Asia because I loved it. 
more than I just I loved it I mean I still dream of Saigon in my I dream of soup sometimes I mean I I the, the day I got there I said to my friend James like I would I want to live here he's like you, you just got here most people are a little overwhelmed I was like nope love it living here forever yeah and it's one of my favorite regions as well amazing amazing to experience to learn to eat but I wanted to be closer to my family uh, who are in Canada and it's a long flight at the time my grandfather who has since passed away was nearing 100. I really wanted to be able to see him more often. So I chose Oaxaca, which is, in my opinion, the best place to eat in Mexico. And I had friends who had lived there who loved it, who said, I think you're going to love it too. And I basically cobbled together with a a group of friends and we all went down for a winter, which was really lovely. And, And then I ended up staying and getting a place longer term. And how long were you living this lifestyle for? I quit in 2008. So that was since then. I I had uh, usually rented a place for like a winter at a time in Saigon or Bangkok or Chiang Mai, wherever. Uh, the first two years was just full-time travel. And then I would come back in the summers usually to do public speaking for opportunities that I was offered during the year to see my family for a longer period of time. You know, people would say, oh, your parents must really miss you. And I was like, they see me far more now than when I was a lawyer you know, and I had come home holding my Blackberry and barely listening. I was so stressed. This was a much more meaningful interaction with them for longer periods of time. So I I basically, yeah, it was, it was since 2008 all the way through till 2017 when I ended up getting quite sick. And before that I had been in Oaxaca since it was the fall of 2015 that I went there for the first time. So as you mentioned in 2017, everything took a bit of a turn. You were on a trip to New York, right? And you ended up in the ER. Tell us what happened. I was uh, I was house-sitting for a friend, cat-sitting for a friend. And um, I ended up in the ER and they wanted to do a lumbar puncture to rule out certain conditions. Was and this the condition that you'd had before? You just, you had no idea. You just no, suddenly had I would symptoms. not have. I think, I'm sure you like many people have read about the costs of, I have insurance in the States. You know, I had global travel insurance. I got sick enough to know this is something I needed, but you know, you don't want to present to the ER in America unless you really have to. No, I, I, I was really sick at the, during that day and, and I was having heart issues. Like there was just a lot that was going wrong that I had never experienced. And my friends from New York were like, you should go to the ER. This is really scary because you've never had these things before. And they did a lumbar puncture to rule out a brain bleed. They were worried I had some sort of aneurysm that would be a problem. I was due to fly back to Montreal. And if I flew, they were worried it would kill me. So what I didn't know at the time was there are a whole bunch of things that predispose you to complications after a lumbar puncture. Things like the size of the needle, the type of needle used, the position your body is in, your body mass index, a whole bunch of things. And they did this lumbar puncture with very large needles to the point where the doctors who ended up help trying to help, you know, the procedures I got thereafter were, did not believe me. Like I had to show them my records for them to, to prove that I had those needles used and it was multiple attempts and the local anesthetic didn't work. It was legitimately the most painful experience of my life. And I say this to someone with like, you know, chronically the inability to stand up for long periods of time now with the CSF leak ongoing. So that is what happened. It basically, the puncture from the lumbar puncture led to something called a spinal CSF leak. CSF is the fluid that surrounds your brain. It cushions your brain and it flows all around your brain and through your spinal cord in something called the dura mater, which 
is Latin for tough mother, which I love as a name, right? But unfortunately, mine was not tough enough and the needle was very big and there were multiple attempts. So what happened is I ended up with puncture holes and or hole, you know, the, the problem with specifically puncture leaks is that they're hard to view on imaging because the, the density of the tissue makes it very hard to spot. So my leak never showed up on imaging. What happened is I got this lumbar puncture. I went back to the apartment I was cat sitting for to add another, you know, sidebar to that, that apartment was burgled while I was at the ER that night. And we had to call the cops. Thankfully, a friend had come back from the hospital with me. It was, it was just one of those like black swan nights that you, you don't want your worst enemies to experience. So I basically could not stand, could not function. I mean, what happens to your nervous system when the CSF flows out of the dura is first of all, your brain, everything is traction downwards because all your nerves are basically sucked down from this low pressure in your spine. And that has a series of neurological problems. I had word finding issues. I couldn't stand. I couldn't eat. I was so dizzy. I mean, it was, it feels like your head is an anvil, like bearing down on your spine. And I went back to the hospital to try and get treatment, which thankfully my community again, came through and was like, this sounds like something I had. It's, I think you need an epidural blood patch where they inject your own blood into your epidural space to try and seal that leak up, basically create a clot that would encourage your body to heal it. I went back to the hospital. They said, no, you seem not sick enough. And basically they sent me home. And I essentially had to have my family come and get me in Brooklyn. And then we drove back to Canada where the neurologist at the ER there said the same thing. She thought I had migraines. I was like, I don't even have a history of migraines. There were big needles in my spine and now I can't stand. Like, I feel like that's correlated, mm, but there's so it's, frustrating. It's, it's a lot of adjective. It's, it was devastating because, you know, not only are you trying to process this incredible pain and try, trying to come to terms with the fact that like, you're not not only are you not getting better, but you're not capable of tying your own shoes, of standing to eat, of doing anything. And doctors are telling you, mm, I'm just thinking, no, I'm thinking this extremely logical sequence of events is not really what's going on. So I basically was connected to somebody who had a CSF leak in her spine as well. She connected me to other patients and, and essentially they all urged me to go down to South Carolina to Duke because Duke has a leak center that is a specialist center for this. Normally Duke sees patients well after they have gotten blood patches locally that fail and they see complex cases. My case was, you know, strange because I got no nobody wanted to help me. So I had to wait months basically. And then my parents and I drove down all the way to North Carolina, which was several days drive, incredibly painful days. And I ended up getting four different procedures. My parents left and one of my best friends, another traveler named Shannon, who we met on the road and at a travel conference actually became besties pretty quickly. She stayed and helped me for the, you know, the rest of that time being also location independent. She basically just did her work from there. I think the hospital was very confused about why we weren't actually needing to leave. <laughs> we, were, we rented a place near the hospital in the event that the patches failed. So we were nearby and the fourth one did work and sealed the leak, but I went into severe anaphylaxis on the table and I almost died. Oh my God, Jody. They had to flip me over and jab me with epinephrine on the table. 
my friend Shannon said when they wheeled me out and this was there after I hit, things had calmed down. She said, my neck, I don't remember this. I was so out of it, but my face and my neck were just completely swelled up. She's like, all she could think of was what I'm going to tell her mother. <laughs> and it, and it was, it was, you know, just as dramatic as all the rest of the story through no fault of my own, you know, I basically didn't know whether the patch worked or not until a few weeks later when it appeared that it did. And I was getting more functional for about eight months total. By eight months, I was walking five kilometers a day, sharing everything with my community. They were cheering me on, you know, as I walked every, it was amazing. And I sat down just the wrong way and it reopened everything. And that was in late September of 2018. And I have not yet gone back for any more procedures because there have been just other complications from all this trauma to the body that have made it much more risky to keep going with these uh, procedures and surgeries. So since 2018, I spent probably two years in bed (laughs) fully with my parents helping take care of me and slowly experimenting. I really have been this lab rat for myself, experimenting with different regenerative medicine supplements and injections and random things. I've slowly been able to get to the point where I can be upright for a few hours a day uh, and take walks again. And I'm living independently right now. My brother comes once a week to help me out and do my laundry. He's like my house elf, the poor guy, but he, he is, he and I have always been very close. It's really wonderful to be near him. So it's not much of a life, right? And it's a very, very small life compared to the life I used to live. I mean, you use the word devastating. It really is devastating. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm so glad that you had so many, you know, friends and family around you that could be there for you to, you know, you need people by your side when you're going through something like this. Having gone through something that traumatic, that's got to shift how you move through the world, not obviously physically, but also mentally. Do you just feel like it's made you feel like anything could happen? Anything could happen. I think sometimes when traumatic things happen to us it pulls away this veil of security that we have to move through the world and changes the way that we see things and it can be sad but it can also be beautiful perhaps yeah I I think you're right I think that it takes a ch- it's a choice to be able to see the beauty as well and for mm-hmm. a lot of people they don't want to do that or can't see it yet you know it's with that kind, with that level of grief and trauma, regardless of what, whether it's my circumstance or someone else, it, it's not easy to get to that place. I think, you know, in the last few years, especially my position has been, my body is not cooperating. I found out I had a genetic condition that predisposed me to these leaks as well, which I'd never heard of before all this happened. It creates wonky scar tissue and weaker scar tissue. So people either have spontaneous spinal CSF leaks or they they have trouble, you know, keeping them sealed, which I now, I mean, it makes sense. It was validating to understand. It's also why the local anesthetic didn't work. Those patients often don't find lidocaine works for them. But as you said, the fact that it, in life, we never know what's going to happen next. We, we delude ourselves into thinking mm-hmm. we have some semblance of control, but we don't. And when everything falls apart at once, you you don't have a choice anymore but to face that confront it and i think you know even with respect to me being dependent on other people we will all get there there's a there's a term called tab temporarily able bodied which the disabled community sometimes you know refers to normal people as and i think that 
it forces you to rethink the world. It forces you to have a perspective and gratitude for things that you never thought to have. I thought I was grateful. I, I, every day I woke up with my life and was like, thank you universe for giving me these tools to build this life I love. I never took it for granted, but I never was also grateful for the fact that I could touch my feet or make my own meals or stand up for more than an hour without being in excruciating pain. There's a granularity to the gratitude practice that comes when life truly unspools. And again, it's not an easy place to get to, you know, this whole concept of toxic positivity. And if you're just, if you think positive, it'll be okay. Yes, it's important to actively choose to focus on the positive. You can't do that unless you process your shit first. You know, I don't think I could have gotten through these few years without grief therapy. That was something I didn't do the first time around. And when I got sealed, I was like, oh, I'm fine. Ah. But of course, when this reopened, I realized that I should have, first of all, to begin with. But secondly, you can't, you can't move on without sitting in the mess and really processing and accepting it. And you can't accept without actually talking it through, either to someone qualified, journaling, whatever it takes, but you can't skip that step because your whole house will crumble eventually if you do. Mm. It's interesting because I think we're all raised with, you know, the the hero's journey arc, right? right. We see it in movies and TV shows and books. And I think there's this expectation that when something terrible happens, that eventually there will be a victorious ending, right? <laughs> and so having to sit in the messy middle part where like you don't know what's going to happen is really, really difficult. Are there any other ways that you have dealt with it besides therapy? Yeah, I think I think therapy, it's not even processing just the grief. The therapy has allowed me to, it, it's the unfairness of it all, right? This is mm-hmm. truly an unfair situation. I don't think I'm the world's worst person. I would not wish this on even bad people. You know, it's just, it, it, the hits kept coming too. There, there's so much more to the story you know, that is just complicated to get into, but it, it really just feels like an onion of catch-22s. And the therapy part helped with not corroding myself with anger because that's never, anger hurts yourself first, right? You don't, you don't want to do that. I think other tools that are really important have been meditation. I did a Vipassana course before all this happened. And I said, you know, I don't know if I would have had the same attitude to where all this had I not done that, it, it was it was impossible for me to be bored once I did it. Not that I was generally a person who was bored, but I would just start doing a body scan, you know. In for anyone who now, doesn't know, can you explain the Pasana meditation? Sure, it's a type of a meditation from a gentleman named Goenka who has since passed. And what I, it's it's what I attended was a ten day silent. They call it a retreat, but it's not it's, it's not, not relaxing, relaxing of replenishing yeah. you're up at you know 4 30 in the morning and you're meditating through till later in the evening and then there's two hours of discourses to listen to there's no dinners it's you eat in the morning you eat at lunch uh you have tea after you know right before the discourse and it's a very regimented uh situation where you're basically using discipline to retrain your mind and with the processes and belief systems of of meditation itself. It's not religious. It is considered secular, but it is based in, you know, Buddhist meditation styles. I did write uh, a long 
post on my site actually about it and much with an FAQ section at the bottom for anyone who is interested. Um, I had never meditated before. This is another example of wow. me deciding to do something. Just throwing yourself in <laughs> right in the deep end. <laughs> my best friend at the time was like, this sounds like solitary isolation. And I said, no, it's, it's like getting a personal trainer when you want to train for a marathon. She goes, no, no, it's like running the marathon before you actually run. She was right. You know, it was yes. an incredibly- There's no like, you're not allowed to have anything distracting, right? There's no books, there's no, no phones. No like it's just you and your brain like trying and to meditate. Inside. Not allowed to speak to other people and not allowed to make eye contact with anybody because yeah, that itself so is a form of communication. I come from Montreal. It's like eye contact city of the world. <laughs> I did a poll at some point and found like Montreal is the city with the most eye contact. And I was like, ah, it was a very intense week, 10 days. And I came out of it. Yeah, the calmest I've ever been. Not that I was, you know, historically always uncalm, but I, I always worried about things. Like I said, I was a ruminator. It taught me that it's possible for your brain to change its patterns. And this combined with the fact that by the time this week happened, I was in the process of writing, I was finishing a, a course on digital storytelling, but I had been doing public speaking about the neuroscience of storytelling and teaching people about how story fundamentally changes your brain, how your brain processes good hero's journeys, good narrative arcs. Your brain believes you're doing the things you're reading, even if you're not doing them. And the combination of, of knowing that I was able to retrain my mind for at least 10 days and, it, and thereafter, and the fact that I, by, by ruminating continuously about the anger, the grief, the worry that I'd never get better, I was teaching my body that we were living this over and over and over. We were living this catastrophe together. And the combination of that is really what pushed me to, to believe it was a choice. I had a choice every day to wake up and choose to focus on the gratitude, to choose to focus on the beauty in the small, on curiosity, which for me, you know, my, my website's new slogan is curious about everything. It used to be telling stories through food. I mean, that's just not what I'm doing anymore. And I think I was unsure, honestly, if my community would come along with me because it's very different from here's where to eat gluten-free food. But a lot of them have, I think the universality of these emotions is clear, right? Like everybody's going to suffer extreme grief and loss at some point, maybe not in the way I have, maybe they won't be losing their mobility, but someone they know might. And I ended up just trying to share the ways that our best to talk to someone in chronic pain, the ways that the meditation helped me, how I coped with being in pain for so long, because I realized that not everyone had a clear path in that process. And I actually had started a Patreon through my community again at telling me, we want to support you somehow. Let us, let us give you money. And I started a Patreon that was supposed to just be a way to support me, but it's turned into this resource for chronic pain where they ask me questions and I do an AMA by video answering what has turned out to be a lot of questions about human suffering and how you functionally do that shift. Because I think everyone wants to believe they can see the beauty in life, even in tragedy, but it's a lot of work. And mm. it does take a decision to concentrate on these things while also acknowledging you're not gonna be perfect. So it's a combination of self-compassion and 
the discipline to keep working on your own mindset. Obviously, you went from being somebody who was very free and roaming the earth and very, you know, engaged with the outside world to being basically, you know, like you said, like laid out in bed for a lot of the day. Right. How do you still find those moments of curiosity and kind of conjure that same, the same feelings that you get from travel when you're at home in bed? Is it possible? I think it's, I don't think it's going to be the exact same because that sort of endorphin hit of the newness of it all. You know, I think of a a movie where the camera is panning in a spiral and it's like this scene unfolding. Your imagination is capable of beautiful things. But for me, I couldn't read about travel or watch travel documentaries or food documentaries because I was just so sad at what I had lost. In this process, I also turns out have an inflammatory immune condition, (laughs) which is why I went into anaphylaxis. And that means all the foods I used to love, I can't eat. I mean, my, my diet is very limited. I go into anaphylaxis on the regular and it really felt like (laughs) this is, this was just this precise creation to take away all of the things I love most in life. So I don't think you can get the same exact feeling, but I do think that you can train your mind to be curious and try and understand the why of how and how of things occurring that brings you that spark of newness, that spark of joy. And the connection to other humans through technology allows that to be different as well. You know, when I started walking again, I would do Instagram videos of birds. I became sort of bird obsessed. Although on my travels, I was crapped on by 14 birds and one bat on my travels, which is an inordinate amount of birds and bats. Good luck. Good luck. (laughs) I mean, one or two is good luck. 14 feels like a vendetta, but I I definitely became, you know, a thing and people would tag me in photos of them getting crapped on birds. And when, when this week happened and I started walking again, I was at my dad's place in Florida and there were cranes and other birds there. And I would start sharing that with everybody. And it, and it did bring me, like truly brought me that sense of wonder and joy that I used to get while I traveled. And it was something at home. You know, I think it's not forcing you yourself to look at beauty and think differently. It's truly allowing yourself to take in the beauty that's already there. And often that is nature. So for me, watching nature documentaries when I couldn't go outside, reading about like why do leaves change their color and fall? How do these things happen? the sort of deep dive into the process for me was, was how I rekindled my sense of wonder. And when I was stuck in bed after the leak reopened the the second time I had a call with friends every night, I basically was unable to sleep. I was just really having a hard time. And I set up this schedule and asked my friends to sign up and I would have a call and every night someone would get the same questions, which was, you know, does spirituality make you more resilient? And how do you find childlike joy and wonder when life takes away something you love? And most of the answers had to do with immersing themselves in nature. And I think there is something very human about that awe that comes with truly, you know, standing next to a giant tree somewhere and feeling what that feels like. Mm, And paying close attention. Like I think, I think, well, um, when I interviewed the author, Mari Andrew, she was, 
Yeah, she's amazing. And she was saying um, that she thinks the special thing about travel is the, the hyper observational mode that you enter when you're in a new place. And I think if you can conjure that hyper observational mode, wherever you are, which it sounds like you have in the changing of the leaves and watching the birds, then you can find magic wherever you are. That's very true. I think that's just my default state, to be honest, and why writing came more naturally. I, I wrote a post many years ago. I don't even know what year, I think 2011, maybe 2012, called "Off." what does off the beaten path really mean? And it was about how I was taking a train in Brooklyn and the train stopped over the bridge for a while. And we were sort of standing, holding the pole. There were six people in this kind of star formation. And the lady next to me was like, so what's your life story? And we just struck up this conversation, all of us, and and had the sort of beautiful meeting of minds that you have usually when you're on the road. The point of the piece was that you don't need to be somewhere off the beaten path to have that meaningful experience. You only need to be able to notice. And I remember Seth Godin, you know, had said in one of his, he was doing a, an event for another book that was coming out and he was hosting it. And he said, I'm in, I'm in the business of being paid to notice things. And I remember that it stuck with me because I was like, that's what I, that's what I do. And I think that has come in handy in this much more limited life, but it is a beautiful skill to cultivate that a lot of people don't think of cultivating. And Mary is a beautiful ex example of somebody who shines a spotlight on what other people consider mundane and shows you this is beautiful. Like you shouldn't discard this in favor of some shiny thing you think is better. This is beautiful too. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. It's a lovely note to end on. It occurs to me that there are lots of sliding doors moments in your story. You know, if you if you hadn't have gone to Annecy, if you hadn't have taken that trip to Brooklyn, there are so many ways that you could have taken different paths. But if you had the chance to go back and stay in the fancy law job, but it would erase all the experiences, good and bad, that you've had over the last decade or so, would you do it? That's a very tough question. <laughs> I, someone asked me, you know, would you have traded all this to be healthy again. And, and I thought that was an unfair question. I, I don't think your question is unfair because you're not asking specifically about my mobility. I don't think I would go back. First of all, I know that I was a canary in a coal mine that had no idea genetically. So who knows how my body would have eventually fallen apart, but it is, I have been told it would have likely fallen apart regardless. And to have been able to live a life of this decadent, concentrated wonder for a decade and experience the world and share it and build a community. I got, when this leak happened, I had people writing me every day telling me, you know, how I had changed their lives. You get that at your funeral. You don't get to hear it usually. It's people saying that, you know, when you're dead <laughs> to have that. I mean, it was so humbling. It really brought me to tears and to just know that I was able to affect change in a different way is why I did what I did and kept doing it. And it's why I, despite the pain, write about this experience now and try and connect with people now, because if it helps some people feel less alone, it's worth it. And I don't know that being a lawyer in the way that I did in corporate law would have really helped in the same way. And I feel like despite the pain and all these experiences, I like but I'm doing more and I like myself more, even though there's a lot of tragedy involved in this whole process. That's a wonderful way of looking at it. And I think you give so much to other people from, you know, your beautiful travel observations and 
all of the stuff you've done for the celiac community to now all of the stuff with chronic pain and, and dealing with uncertainty and resilience. So yeah, I think you're amazing. And thank you so much oh, for sharing you. your story. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. You've asked very thoughtful questions too. Where can people find you on the internet, Jody? I am on Legal Nomads. Uh, as you said, .com and Legal Nomads as well on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. The, the about page on my site sets out all the different projects I'm doing as well. So that might be the easiest way for people to find out what I'm up to. Lovely. And before you go, I'd love yeah. to do a quick fire round. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Oh, this is interesting. This is a question I've actually asked friends as well. A lot of people say things like, you should experience a giant thunderstorm or someone said an acid trip. You know, I, I got a whole <laughs> bunch of responses. For me, I think anything that gives you a sense of perspective is something you have to experience. So I would say traveling to a developing country for people who are privileged to be growing up in the first world or in a Western country. I think that you easily lose track of what you should be really grateful just to have at a basic level. And that's one way to remind you of what's out there. So that's what travel did for me, for many people. I wish it was mandatory in high school for everybody. So I think that that really is one of the things everyone should experience. Travel to a place very different from their own to be able to experience the world in a different way and, and have more compassion and empathy for our fellow humans. Yes. If you could teleport somewhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Back to Saigon and I would eat everything I could. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite dish or is that too hard? Uh, there's so many. I love bunryu soup, uh, crab and tomato broth soup. I was absolutely obsessed with the, the woman who sold it on the street near where I was living. So laugh when I come, be like, I'm back, back for more soup. Um, <laughs> and there's another soup called bun mok, which is uh, vermicelli noodles with pork and mushroom meatballs and it was my soup whenever I didn't feel well is it's this really comforting broth and I I do think about it a lot <laughs> yeah um, what's the most unusual thing you've eaten while traveling um <laughs> you're like where do I begin <laughs> I know I don't know I've had you know very fermented stinky tofus and strange animals as well I think the most unusual thing I ate was a, a llama empanada because it was not fully cooked and got me very sick. So oh, no. <laughs> llamas were one of my favorite animals. My brother claims it's a karmic retribution, but I think that uh, if you're going to eat street food, which I did for years, I learned in that early on, that was in 2008, do not eat anything that's not fully cooked through and probably not something that's your favorite animal either. <laughs> something that's your favorite animal. Oh, <laughs> What's the most serendipitous thing that's ever happened to you while traveling? Oh, there's been a few. I wrote, I've written about a few of them. One, one amazing experience was, was just meeting someone in line at an ATM and then six months later on a completely different continent, running into them again over a meal. You know, things like that used to happen a lot where there's just this, this experience of meeting someone somewhere and then showing up elsewhere or reading someone somewhere and then finding them in front of me. I had a reader actually who, who is a really great human being and is a doctor. At the time he was not, and he was traveling to Palau 
And I had written about this woman who was a lawyer who quit her job to be a, a working in Palau as, as a clerk there. And he was reading the piece and he looked up and she was right in front of him. And he's like, is, is this you? She, she, I'm sure, was freaked out. He was with his wife. It was probably a little less creepy than it could have been. And then it turns out years later, he wrote me again recently and was like, by the way, I work for a doctor who specializes in CSF leaks. And I saw your recent story and he had complete, he had, you know, gone to med school, changed his, gotten his specialty and happened to work for the doctor that I had just spoken with. So it was a very, that's very really crazy coming around. Wow. This is going to be a really hard question, but which <laughs> country has the best food? Uh, I'm, I, I think if I was able to eat everything, I would probably feel like Japan is up there because the food is so just precisely beautiful in so many ways and also has this whole other side of snacks and I can't eat most of them right they're either dredged in flour full of soy sauce with wheat something it was travels to Japan that inspired me to do these cards because I got sick with a gluten-free card like every day I think I would go back to Vietnam again it really remains one of my go-tos with food and I could eat it happily and never get sick of it at all what's a lesser known destination that you recommend to other travelers what is a lesser known destination that I recommend? I don't really recommend destinations to people. I mostly answer their questions, to be honest. I think that my whole MO has always been to just go to places that you find incredible. And even if other people don't, you'll find something that makes you happy there. I, I used to recommend people going to Iceland. Now it's become not lesser known. I used to recommend Oaxaca. Now it's not lesser known. So I think being that I haven't been able to travel in quite a few years, uh, the places that were lesser known are now no longer so. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> Beach, mountain, jungle, or city? Mountain. Always the mountain. And is there a book, show, film, or podcast that you'd recommend for a long journey? Uh, yes, I would recommend Krista Tippett's On Being. Because I love that one too. It is such a wide spectrum of what it means to be human. And I, I will never get tired of her thoughtful questions either. It's a great podcast. Um, well, thank you, Jodie. You've been amazing. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and meet you as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.